um, she has she reached out to me and we were talking about dogs and books and just being new to Paris and and everything that is the city and the idealization of what people expect when they come here versus when they live here. And so it was really fun. Also important to note is that my friend Renee came and joined us and she gave some insight onto her opinions throughout the conversation and Renee will likely be coming a little bit more so you'll hear from her other times as well. Uh, Enjoy the show. Okay, so today we have Kate joining us. Thanks for being here, Kate. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your blog? Yeah, it's called Last Night's Reading. I started it back in 2013 when I lived in New York City. Um, At the time, I was kind of a broke student, and I was always looking for free things to do in the city. And one of the the things you can do there is go to free book readings in bookstores and libraries. Um, And I'm kind of a bookworm, so I was always going to all these book readings. And I'm an illustrator, too, so while I was at these events, I would be just sketching little portraits of the authors and writing down quotes that I found interesting or funny that they said. And so I started posting these portraits on Tumblr and they seemed to, um, they seemed to interest a lot of people and they started gaining more and more attention. And I eventually started posting them on Facebook and Instagram too. Um, and then in 2015, um, Penguin, the publisher approached me and asked me if I was interested in turning my collection of portraits into a book. And of course I said, yes, Um, So the book came out in 2015, um, and since then I think I've attended about like somewhere between like 2,000 um, or 1,500 book readings since I started in 2013, so it's a lot. Um, And I've continued the project since I lived in Paris, um, and I moved to Paris in January 2018, and so I've been attending book readings here in Paris too at places like Shakespeare and Company and the American Library and the Red Wheelbarrow. So it's nice that I was able to continue this project even in a different country. So can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, so the book Last Night's Reading, um, it's not just a collection of portraits from my blog and my website. It's also kind of a love letter to all the bookstores and libraries in New York City that I would be spending all these evenings in. And it's kind of like an illustrated testament to why these institutions are so important. They're more than just places where you can buy a book. There's also there's also like sources of community, places you can just hang out where you don't necessarily have to spend money to be there. Um, and especially I, I worked for three years for the Brooklyn Public Library. So I'm kind of like well-versed in like the importance that public libraries have within their communities. Again, they're not just like places to lend books. They're places you can take language classes and helping with immigration groups and senior citizens and children. So the book is kind of like a love letter to why those places are so important to a city like New York. And so is it based off of your book that you have your Instagram account, or did the Instagram come first and then your book came? Uh, The Instagram came first. Um, I really think that the book came about because of social media, because like I said, I started the blog on Tumblr and then eventually um, expanded to Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and I never started the website with the intention to publish a book. It was just, I just wanted to share these portraits and quotes with other random people on the internet. And when that seemed to gain attention, that's kind of when I, um, Penguin approached me. But it's so much more organic that way. Doesn't it feel like it? As, yeah. As opposed to you're publishing these things for other people or for the recognition you're you're posting it because of what you love and then as you can see with your instagram it became a following and it's because it's your passion project yeah and that's why i still enjoy doing it um it's never felt like homework or like a chore to me to go to these book readings and um post these portraits online and i think that's probably that's probably a big i think like the people who go through my website kind of sense that that it's not something I'm doing for followers or like to get like promotion for um and I think that just comes across and having worked in the publishing industry I know how hard it is to get a book published so I think like if um editors or agents can sense that like genuine passion behind a project then um it makes it easier to sell a book too so what was your process like getting published 
Um, so uh, it was about like two years since after I started the website um, when like I would get occasional like write-ups on websites, um, like literary websites. So I've started to get more and more attention for the website. Um, and that's when an editor from Penguin approached me about if I was ever interested in turning it into a book. And like I said, I had never thought about it before. Um, so at that point, I was like, I should probably talk to um, a literary professional about like what I should do next. So I started asking my friends if they knew any literary agents, and someone set me up with my current agent. And she kind of walked me through the process of how to sell a book, and she negotiated everything. Um, and so she kind of did all the heavy lifting because um, – I'm kind of like a people pleaser, so I'm bad at saying no to people. So she's kind of the person who says no for me. And she was able to like negotiate with Penguin and like um, reach an agreement that everyone was happy on. And so that's kind of how the book came about. And your publisher, she you still have her? Uh, they published the first book. And my second book was published with a smaller press called um, Boom Studios, who exclusively do graphic novels. Okay. but you're, So your agent is who you keep? Yeah, my agent. <laughs> so out of my element here. I just all I know is how difficult it is to even be have a foot in the publishing industry. Yeah, I um, after college I worked exclusively in the book publishing world, so I guess I have about like five or six years of experience working there, so I am familiar with how to get a book published. But it's like surprisingly. Um, different when you're the author on the author side yeah. of things um, because it's basically your baby so you have like a much more personal stake in the whole process um, so it, yeah I think I have an interesting perspective in that I know how it is from the editor's side and the author's side and so you're writing are you writing your book now or what's are you coming up with ideas yeah I'm working on a proposal for the new book it's also a graphic novel like my second one um, so right now I'm just putting together um, the illustrated first chapter and then I actually write out the entire book, like uh, the entire book's text, just like on a Word doc. And once I have that already, I'll start sending it out to publishers. And what what's your thoughts about this book, if you want to share? Um, it's really inspired by kind of my 20s in New York. It's about a group of three girls just like fresh out of college and they're all working in the book publishing industry. And um, I always thought that that part of the book publishing world was interesting because the assistants do so much work and they get so little credit. Um, and a lot of it is like grunt work, like getting coffee or like making photocopies. Um, and when I was doing that and when I was like 21 or 22, I would constantly be on Gchat with my friends. So the book is kind of like following these three girls as they Gchat all through their boring work days and like suffering through like the indignities of working in an office, which can be like really specific. Um, and the book is set in 2011. Um, so it's kind of before everyone was constantly on Twitter all the time. So they're kind of just like burying their souls out on Gchat to each other. So the book kind of follows their friendship and how they kind of deal with like microaggressions in the office and um, like dealing with their tiny paychecks and living in like a tiny apartment in Brooklyn. So it's, it, it just follows their a year in their life doing that. That's, that sounds really good. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, I like I really it a do. lot. I feel, cause that's so relatable, not only if you live in Brooklyn, but like would be relatable here in Paris. Mm -hmm. I mean, your paychecks aren't great. You live in a tiny studio. Yeah. You're just trying to make your way in life, essentially. Yeah. And a big part of the book um, that I hope it comes across is that um, after like five or six years working in book publishing, like most of my bosses were women. So like I was working in like a really like women led industry and the my three characters are all Asian like me. Um, two are Filipino, one's Japanese. And so a lot of it is kind of like um, how they work with that dynamic of they are in a women-led industry, but then all their bosses are like these really domineering white women. So it's kind <laughs> of like how they work with those relationships um, because that I don't think that's talked too much in the talked about too much in the publishing world. 
Do you think that's getting talked about more? Because I've done, I've gone to book conferences, BookCon in New York before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this entire publishing that is focused on giving people of color, people of minority, a bigger voice in the publishing mm-hmm. world, not only in books, but my guess is likely as authors as well. Do you think it's just becoming more of a conversation that hadn't happened before? Or when you were working in 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. is it more prominent now? Oh, yeah, it's definitely more prominent now. I know Penguin Random House has a program where they, like, actively seek out, like, a diverse applicants when they post a job. Um, but I also think that's just the first step. I think, like, just hiring someone and not giving them the resources to succeed, like, mm-hmm. is going to set them up for failure. Um, and, um, like, my five or six years working in publishing, I never had a boss, male or female, of color. And so, like, I, I think that makes a difference. And so... I'm not, like, trying to make a comment in my book. I'm just, like, relaying my personal experience about how it was working in a situation like that. That's where it becomes difficult. It's, like, you're not trying to make a comment because it is such a prominent part of your life. It happens to be a comment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just your life in general instead of an actual, like, this is what's happening in the world. It's, like, this is what I experience every day. So Yeah, and I think that's kind of the best. Not not setting out to like make like a grand political statement or anything, but just telling stories is the best way to comment on mm-hmm. something. And not saying I'm trying to get X Y Z across. It's just saying these are the story of these three girls, and this is their experiences. And I think it, you can make a comment in a very organic, natural way by just telling a story. I so I might I have a a thought about the publishing and the book world at the moment, at least in young adult where I read more. And I'd love to hear your comments on it because I don't know if I'm right about this, but there's a lot of books out there that have probably predominantly white characters or predominantly straight or this or that. And then obviously there's a lot more diversity coming in. Um, But it seems like if you have a book where there is no representation at all or if there's only one representation or two representations people attack it but without recognizing that the fact that in some of these people in a lot of people's life their life is only this person or this character or this representation like a lot of people at least in the middle of America probably don't interact with people outside of their hometown and does that story deserve to be recognized just as much as any other story? Like, does it, is it right to call people out when it might not be recognizing whoever's natural progression story is, if that makes sense? Yeah, um, I think it makes sense. And, like, if you grew up in, like, a predominantly white community and you write a, a story about that, then that's that's your story and that's mm-hmm. your experience. And I don't think there's a problem with writing about those stories. I think the problem is that what stories get attention and what don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and you... And, like, men have been writing sad stories about their divorces since, like, the beginning of time. (laughs) And they're continually winning literary prizes for that. So go them. But, like, we're kind of tired of hearing those stories. So, um, And there have always been writers of color and um, writers of different sexualities and all all kinds of makeups. But they just haven't been getting the attention that they deserve. Um, So I think what really needs to be more addressed is making sure that there's um, not only like a diversity of authors, but a diversity of editors, agents, um, art directors, even because book covers are really important mm-hmm. for, about yeah. uh, when it comes to selling a book. So making sure that it's just you're not just getting like a token author. You're actually like making sure that the team supporting them can understand them on a level that's that's worthwhile. Yeah, that's super interesting because one of the books I read, An Ember in the Ashes, I think, written by a woman of can't tell you what descent because then I'd be saying something completely wrong. But she's a person of color. And so she um, she changed her book cover, the second book, to, sh- to, to sh- broadcast what, who her characters were, were, which were diverse characters all across the board, sexuality, color, all that stuff. And people got so mad at her because they were like, the book cover was so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And her response was beautiful of being like, yeah, my characters are characters of color, but you can't see it on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that's my responsibility to show them not only in the pages, but on the cover. Yeah. Mm. So I think, I mean, that's good for her if she was able to do that. But another 
thing that a lot of authors don't have control of is the book cover mm. themselves. Mm-hmm. As a graphic novelist, I do get a little bit more say, but like if you're just straight up writing a novel, you usually don't get that much say unless like you specifically write it into your contract that you want to get like final approval. But most of the time, having worked in that part of the industry, you the author usually doesn't get to approve or disapprove. So I feel like it's wrong to attack an author for yeah. their cover because yeah. that's usually not their choice. That yeah. reminds me of like The Hunger Games with Rue and how like when I was in college, everyone was like, oh, you remind me of Rue. It says she's black and da 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 da. And like I didn't read it. And then I went and watched the movie and I was like, oh. And then you, like I don't remember, like if you guys remember the backlash when people found out that Rue was actually black. No. Yeah, like, people were, like, really pissed off that she was black, and they were like, well, it doesn't say anywhere in the book that she's black, but, like, there's a line that says she's dark-skinned and curly hair, and, like, you know, and but that was, like, it. And then there's no other writing about her skin tone because it doesn't matter in The Hunger Games. But, like, yeah. that, it's weird, like, as much as we want diversity and how important it is that there is always going to be that loud minority that are going to, fight against it or think that you know like it doesn't matter but it's because the people that are the loudest minority are the usually the ones that are the most represented Mm -hmm. I guess and I don't know like I just that's what it reminds me I was like what is she supposed to do put a picture of her on the cover and like this is rude by the way just in case you want to read this I don't know and also the author probably didn't have any say in the casting of a movie yeah yeah um, yeah, the authors actually don't have that much control over a lot of stuff once the book is actually published. So when like people will like dogpile on authors for certain things, sometimes I feel like it's not always warranted when they didn't have a say in making some of the decisions. People dogpile when they have a lack of understanding of what's actually the process mm-hmm. of what it's like. But we were talking about this for um, movies and TV as well. Um, the importance of sure there's more diversity on the screen but there's less in the writing rooms mm-hmm. or in the um editing or producing and how important that is yeah because the people who write the movie are basically telling the story and um, we were talking specifically about crazy rich asians and how there was a news story about how for the next movie they kind of got rid of the one asian writer who's writing the script for it um and like uh, it's great to have, like, Asian representation and, like, the actors um, being able to see that, but it's more important about, like, the words coming out of their mouths and who's writing those mm-hmm. words. Because, yeah, I could never represent someone else's story. Yeah. Why would I be in there? Why would I be writing the whole script for it? Mm-hmm. Especially but with something as intricate and important as an Asian-American movie. It was so good. <laughs> I cried on the plane when I watched it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good plane movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good I I was actually in Singapore when it came out really? with my Singaporean friend. Ooh. So I made her go and watch it with me. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, this is made for Americans. Yeah. I was like, yeah, well, of well, course yeah. it is. I heard it didn't do well in like a lot of Asian countries because it was like American <laughs> tropisms and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so. also because in those Asian countries, the predominant people on the screen are Asian. Are Asian. Asian. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like, oh, cool. It's just another <laughs> movie for them. Yeah, yeah. And she was definitely like, there's not enough Malay representation in here. And I was like, there's always a problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. But it was really interesting watching it with her and getting their two cents. Anyways, um, <laughs> so, you, so you moved from New York to Paris. And you continued your Instagram and your blog throughout this. How is it different doing it here and there for you? Well, the biggest thing is that I'm still improving and learning my French. So a lot of the authors who come to Paris obviously are French. So most of the authors I see here, are, or all the authors I see here are English speaking. So that really narrows down the number of book readings and um, literary events I go to here. Um, but there's still like great places like Shakespeare and Co and the Mm -hmm. American library where I can still see, um, lots of good events. Um, but, um, since I'm going to less events, I think that my website has focused more on like, um, just celebrating authors themselves, not necessarily at a specific bookstore. Like, um, it was recently like Gabriel Garcia Marquez's birthday. So I, I did a post on that and it was recently, um, 
Hispanic Heritage Month, so I did a post about that. So it's less, it's kind of becoming more broader because I'm going to actually less book readings now that I'm in Paris. So I actually think it's a good thing that I'm able to like expand more to like different subjects about besides just going to a book reading every night. And you said that you have more time now to kind of discover different aspects of your blog and different aspects of your writing as well. Yeah, this is the first time since college that I've never had like a regular nine to five office job and I'm just freelancing full time. Um, And I've been writing a lot about kind of the adjustment of moving from New York to Paris, um, the good things and the bad things. Um, And there's like so much quote-unquote like expat literature so Mm. I've been reading a lot and kind of discovering what I don't like and like (laughs) about it um and it's it's interesting to try to carve a niche into that because um a lot of it is like people like Hemingway or Fitzgerald like really outdated like white guys living in Paris (laughs) so like I'm more interested in like more contemporary things and that reflects kind of like the people that I'm seeing now I feel like (laughs) all of the literature that I see about Paris that's written by an expat is usually a white person. And they it's either an old guy, like Hemingway, or it's a woman talking about like the fashion and the beauty of Paris, like how to raise your kids or how to be the perfect French woman as an American or something like that. And there's just no like how to just exist in this city. There's like no they, realness. Yeah, they completely ignore the everything. Yeah. <laughs> Paris. So your experience with um, with reading the expat literature and then choosing what to take and what not to take and kind of expanding your niche on that, what have you chosen to take and what have you chosen not to take? Um, I, um, Speaking to what you said about like all the women who are writing about like their amazing, like, baguette experiences in <laughs> drinking wine yeah. for brunch yeah like that's Ugh. definitely not my experience at all so it's not something I'm taking um but I there are actually like a lot of really good like black people and people of color mm-hmm. writing about um Paris um and like in the contemporary sense I think there's a, a book that came out recently it's in French um it's called like the new Parisians and it's focusing on like black people and people of color and LGBTQ um, communities here in Paris. So I think there is definitely like a lot of good work happening, but like the thing that, but the work that mostly gets like put on a pedestal is like a movable feast. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but since I moved here, like I've been reading like a lot more James Baldwin, which is really good. And just seeking out writers on the internet, because that's kind of like where a lot of the lesser known writers are like Mm -hmm. posting their work. Um, but for me, I've mostly just been focusing on like writing about my day to day to day life in Paris. Um, like I said, I'm full time freelance and so I am illustrating and writing, but for like, but I'm also doing things like dog walking and babysitting, um, and random jobs like that. And so I've been like writing and illustrating about my encounters with French people as I do those things. Um, and I recently wrote an illustrated essay for the website long form, And it was about my experience being a dog walker in Paris and how, like, when I first moved here, I was really scared to speak French because I was really self-conscious about my thick American accent. And I think that, like, when people saw me, I'm Filipino-American, they would immediately assume I'm either a tourist and, of course, I wouldn't speak French. And that would just immediately put me... It just, like, put me in a really anxious mood when it came to, like, attempting to speak French. But then when I started walking dogs more and more strangers would start talking to me like they would ask me like what kind of what kind of dog is that or she's so cute or like how old is she and of course they would be talking to the dog but I would have to respond (laughs) for the dog (laughs) and I would be responding in like my very basic French but it was kind of like my gateway to speaking French with French people was through dog walking That's that's so interesting and like a lot of it I was like I was excited, but also, like, are people only talking to me because I'm walking a super cute dog right now? That's accurate. um, (laughs) That's accurate. uh, So Probably true. Yeah, the essay is kind of about how, like, my attempt to get over my fear of speaking French badly and how dogs helps me with that. (laughs) That's so smart. It just proves the point that dogs are amazing. (laughs) They bring people together. Oh, my goodness. I mean, like, I would only go up to a dog. I'm not going to go up to a random person on the street and be like, tell me about you. I'm, 
I'm so scared. I always talk about how much I love dogs, but I'm like one of those, like, I see it from far away and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) the dog. (laughs) The funny thing about dogs in Paris is that um, people often ask, like, what kind of breed is that dog? And in French, it's Kelras. Like, what race? Mm-hmm. So it's such a weird question. Oh just people <laughs> have people approaching on the street and being, what race? <laughs> oh, like, wow. Oh, it's a Pomeranian. <laughs> I would never. I did not know that. That's. I would freak out if I heard that the first time. Like, yeah, it was a little unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> also, the fact that you need to know the type of dogs but, uh, yeah. stresses me out, too. <laughs> well, I've heard that, like, a lot of the times, especially in Paris, like, there's no, like, you don't get a mixed breed dog. Oh, yeah, that is... Um, like I love dog shelters and I used to volunteer at one so this is kind of like something I'm really against <laughs> like here everyone buys from breeders which yeah. is really depressing yeah I, I've seen one mixed breed dog and it was like homeless so oh. <laughs> it was very sad well I was looking into adopting a dog here and it, it is a lot more difficult especially if you're not a French citizen mm-hmm. so I also think it's a lot easier to buy from breeders here yeah. than in the U.S. So I was looking at volunteering at a dog shelter, and they're all outside Paris. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's none of it's easy to get to, and it's probably quite difficult to even do it. Yeah, it just makes the process so much harder. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna do it. I mean, there's plenty of cats on the street, so you could <laughs> probably find one of those easier. They have a cat cafe. I yeah, yeah. it's great. No, it is. How it's a cat cafe but you here's my problem i view cat cafes and dog cafes similarly as i would like going to Thai, uh, thailand and visiting an elephant or a tiger but th- nah uh, well you know no, 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 that they're no. not living a good life no but a lot of the well i don't know about here but like the ones that i've been to in the u.s a lot of the animals were up for adoption yes that's the only time i i support it those are the only ones i've been to yeah so. and i also think like cats and dogs are slightly different because i'm going to japan and i really wanted to go to a hedgehog cafe oh, but yeah. then i actually googled if it was act- they actually like take care of the hedgehogs and it didn't seem they like don't. they're like really stressed yeah because i uh-uh. yeah. So. i've been in japan and i that was the hardest decision not to, <laughs> yeah. to oh, not to go and so visit sad. them yeah. not to go visit the cats or the dogs or any of them because they're not treated well yeah. the only time i went was when like they were really old dogs and they were getting adopted and i oh, knew they were getting adopted yeah. and i the, the people are so nice i'm just like I went multiple times. Well, yeah. if you guys really like hedgehogs, you can just come to my city because apparently there's a really large wild hedgehog population. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really weird. I just find one? Yeah, they, like one crawled out from underneath a trash can the other day. Oh, and fine. I was walking with a friend and I thought it was a stuffed toy. So I was like, <laughs> oh, look, a hedgehog toy. And it started moving. And instead of, you know, just screaming like a normal person, my friend screamed and then pushed me in front of a moving car. <laughs> so, And it's like midnight. So it's just, but <laughs> it's you know whatever hedgehogs <laughs> that was the moral of the story <laughs> oh wow so have you have you <laughs> sorry <laughs> going back no, no no more so like you've read a lot of literature based in paris but current literature or current blogs or all that stuff about being i don't like to use the word expat as much because that definitely shows a type of class but being an immigrant in paris have you read those and have you formed thoughts on your blog based on those yeah i'm i think i'm still kind of like working on a bigger piece about this but since i moved here i have been like paying more attention to lots of blogs and websites based on um, being a expat in paris Mm -hmm. and a lot of them really do work towards posting this very idealized um, kind of magical version of Paris that doesn't really exist on a day-to-day level, at least in my case. Um, And a lot of it is like, a lot. when I scroll through these blogs, I'm also like, it is kind of obvious like how much of it is kind of just for show and like they're not talking about like the five-hour wait at the prefecture or Mm -hmm. like walking through walking along the Seine and having people yell ni hao at you everywhere you go. No way. Um, but, like, of course, that wouldn't make a nice Instagram post, so they're not going <laughs> to post about that. Um, but there is kind of, I think, um, kind of um, a lot of expats do go on to, like, start these blogs that post just, like, a very idealized version of Paris. And a lot of the people that I know who live here 
do not experience that on a day-to-day basis. But when you tell people you're living in Paris, they immediately have this vision of what they think your life is like based on like movies or books or just like an American idea of Paris. And, um, and I do feel really lucky to live here. I think like it is a lot of privilege for me to be able to live in a foreign city and have a, a visa to live here. Um, but then like you, because of that, you feel like you're not justified in complaining because when I talk to my friends back home, I'll start complaining, but they're like, Oh, but you're in Paris. Yeah. Mm. I've Um, had that. So you kind of, the only other people you can talk to are other people who live here (laughs) who also (laughs) experience like the bureaucracy of Paris. (laughs) And And have you been back home and they're like, how is it? How are you doing? And you can't be like, it sucks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because again, like, you do feel like you're kind of being ungrateful because um, like my parents moved to the U S from the Philippines for like a better life, but I chose to move to France. Mm. Um, And so I do feel like really privileged to be here. But then again, there's always something to complain about. And I think like a lot of the complaints are valid. Um, And a lot of it just has to do with people's perceptions of Paris and not able to like, and I know people that will like, their great dream in life is to visit Paris one day. So part of me also doesn't want to ruin that vision for them sometimes. Um, so yeah, it is like this weird kind of balance you have to keep in your mind when you're, when you're talking about your life in Paris, because, um, sometimes it's not interesting to hear someone complain about how like your guardian refuses to put your mail in the right box because they don't know how to read your last name. So like it's hard, sometimes hard for them to kind of, keep that in mind with their vision of Paris when you tell them about those things. Mm-hmm. My grandmother has an idealized view of Paris and it's been her dream her entire life to come here. So, you know, when I was like, Oh, I'm moving here. She was like, yes, like lost <laughs> her mind. And f- she came here in March, I think. And just like, I felt like I had to shield <laughs> a lot of like the, the, the darkness and, you know, cause I mean, this is kind of weird, but like we were at a Starbucks outside of Versailles and there was a a man literally like pooping on the street right outside the the Starbucks. It's not weird to anyone who's a parent. Well, I mean, but like it it was like nine o'clock in the morning and we were just drinking our coffee and my grandma was sitting towards me, so away from the window, but like she kept wanting to like look out. And the man was there for, I swear, like 20 minutes. And I was like, so, Grandma, tell me about your this and tell me about <laughs> Wow, what's your favorite color? Like, <laughs> Anything to keep her attention. Really trying to, like, not have her be like, you live here. Like, I thought this place was magical. And she left, I think, with a really positive view of Paris. Um, but, like, I felt like I had to keep up that image because I didn't want like you know I mean it's your grandma she's gonna worry about you and be like are you are you eating enough are you going to sleep on the right times or whatever but like you live in a foreign country and everyone thinks that Paris is much more dangerous than the US which is like I don't know. <laughs> Both your faces. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Like, but you know, like people are like, "But didn't they just have a terrorist attack?" And I'm like, "We just had a shooting, like, like yesterday in a high school in a nightclub, like, like every day, <laughs> every day." And you're like, "They had a terrorist attack like four years ago." I literally <laughs> read the other day the fact that these online things were like, "We're in school," which means school shootings start to happen again. <laughs> that <What>? those two <laughs> combinations. Ooh, why? <laughs> or like the people that are like, why is it we like it's so weird that school shootings uh, go down uh, between June and July, and you're like, because no one's at school. <laughs> Duh. Like, why oh. do they pick back up in September? Oh, uh, really obvious reason. I have no idea. Did you find that you had an idealized version when you came to Paris? I think. Um, I was never like a francophile. I was never like dying to live in Paris. Um but I've I've visited a couple times before I moved here and I really liked it. Um but again, like being on vacation is very different from living in a city. So I kind of had the vacation goggles on where I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a very cute fun city to <laughs> yeah. live in. My life will be like Amelie maybe." But like I wasn't like um 
I wasn't I wasn't a Francophile or anything, um, but I can understand what you're talking about, like kind of maintaining the facade for your grandmother because. I live in the sixth arrondissement, which is a very touristy neighborhood. It's by Notre Dame. Oh. So, like, I'm surrounded by tourists a lot day to day. And um, I was reading about this thing that um, is kind of a well-known phenomenon called Paris Syndrome, mm-hmm. where um, tourists will come to Paris, and it's their lifelong dream to, par- to, be, to come here. And they're, like, disappointed by the crowds, by the quote-unquote rudeness of um, waiters and things like that. And then because that their expectations aren't matched, they're kind of plunged into this depression. And it has this name called Paris Syndrome, and it was commonly seen, I think, in, like, Japanese tourists. And since I live in such a touristy neighborhood, I definitely see that on a daily <laughs> basis where, like, I'll see couples fighting because they have to get to the Louvre at a certain time, but then traffic is bad and, like... Um, they're supposed to be on their dream vacation, but they're like screaming at each other in front of Notre Dame, <laughs> and I and I think that's kind of representative of Paris syndrome is like the city sets such high expectations on their visitors, but like this is like a normal city. There's traffic and people will be rude to you sometimes, or you'll step in dog shit. Like there's, <laughs> it's not gonna be like perfect, and um, it's kind of hard to accept that when you've like spent your whole life dreaming of coming here for a week or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been kind of thinking about writing more about that and kind of my experience living in such a touristy neighborhood that you see that so much. Paris syndrome specifically? I think so. Like, I don't know if it's like really a, a concrete thing, but because yeah. like I think you can have Paris syndrome about like Tokyo or like <laughs> Berlin or whatever. Um, and it's just about like maintaining expectations. And I think because I never was like a, a diehard Francophile, like, the fact that their that life in Paris hasn't been perfect, I've been able to kind of like deal that mm. deal with that better than other people, I think. But that happens with anything that's idealized. Mm-hmm. Like if you idealize a person or a celebrity or any other place in the world, and you go there, and it's just, oh, like you're the same. Yeah. Or with marriage, so off track. But you <laughs> hear true. this, you hear this with marriage. It's like. Mm-hmm. You idealize that ceremony and you idealize a wedding and then the next day you're like, I'm exactly the same person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like moving to Paris isn't going to make your life. I mean, some people, it's like it was the best experience ever, especially after you saw Notre Dame go up in flames and people were like, <laughs> I visited it five years ago. <laughs> Here's my photo. <laughs> yeah. Here's my photo from this one monument that impacted my life so greatly just my to showcase to brag, that you baby. went to Paris. <laughs> Lots of feelings on that. But, I mean, it's true. It is true. Tons of people are dying in Yemen. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That's a horrible viewpoint no, to have. No, but, it, but it's true. It's just, if you're, if you're not French and you don't have that love of that kind of culture, you should have no say, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Even people who just moved here were like, this is the worst day. And I'm like, you have, <laughs> you're new. This isn't you. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't your identity. The, you're not singing along with the French where this is their identity. And they're they're allowed to be heartbroken a bit. And they immediately got millions of dollars for millions. Yeah. When people are dying, <laughs> that got me. And in the, in the city. In yeah. the city. Oh. <laughs> the, that's a whole other, I, I have the same opinions probably but they were really unpopular until about three i said that the day after and no one everyone hated me for it and then three or four days later people started saying it more and they were like oh my god you're right i was (laughs) like i know (laughs) i remember my it was so weird like my host mom who never let me take the kids anywhere even though i always like offered you know we can go to the museum or something and sometimes i did end up having to take like the youngest or whatever to into the city and we would go into Notre Dame because he gets really overwhelmed really quickly and it's the quietest place even though there was a lot of people and literally we had been there that day before Mm. it went on fire and um, she was like what are we going to do we never got the chance to take them and I was like you didn't even care like (laughs) five minutes ago (laughs) before you even saw it she was like crying her eyes out and like that's when I was like okay like I are you yeah. going to post your vacation picture in front of the Notre Dame? Like, I don't know. Unpopular opinion. Whatever. Unpopular. <laughs> Ignite a lot of controversy. Well, I I just was like, well, we were there earlier, so it's fine. And 
the it's other still one there too. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. you just can't go inside there. now. You're still gonna avoid it, just like you did before, because it was so busy. So, um, how long did it take for you to realize what you had kind of semi idealized was wrong? I think the biggest um, kind of change I had to reckon with when I moved here was learning the language. I knew it was gonna be a challenge. Um, and I guess my idealized idea about that is that, oh, I'll be living in Paris. Everyone says if you live in Paris, you'll just immediately absorb the language like a sponge and just be able to speak it. Um, and as a writer, like language and expressing myself is incredibly important to me. And the fact that I couldn't do that really, um, really kind of took a lot out of me when I first moved here. Um, cause I feel like when I speak French, I have no personality cause my vocabulary is so limited and I can only say like really simple sentences. So that was just like really hard to deal with at first. And it's not like I'm fluent now. I'm, my vocabulary is a lot better, but it's, I still feel like I'm not able to express myself fully. So I feel like anyone who can only speak to me in French will never be able to like really know me because they're just getting like this, this awkward robotic person who can only speak in three tenses so that's like not really (laughs) who I fully am at the moment so kind of like and I also feel like I'm not going to be able to fully experience Paris or France unless I can speak the language because also like there's so much French literature I want to read in the original French Um, I miss eavesdropping on conversations and like I want to be able to see French films so I feel like I'm still missing out on a big part of the city because I'm not fluent in French yet um And I think that kind of keeps me from having this idealized version of Paris because I don't know the real Paris yet because I don't speak French. See, I had that feeling, not that I speak the language well at all, but I had that feeling as well, and I was talking to my teacher who is fluent, and she's like, you'd be surprised by the things that you're missing out on, like talking to a cashier or talking to this person, that it doesn't happen anyways. <laughs> She's like, you'd be surprised. Like, it might happen in the States, but it doesn't happen here. And so even the second you have the language or the second you have, I mean, not taking away from literature and film, obviously, which are important parts for you, but just the everyday living, it doesn't necessarily, it's not idealized in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. And I eavesdropped in New York, and it's not like they're talking about amazing things. <laughs> and it's not like I'm missing out on some grand scandal in the, on the metro or anything. Yeah. Um, but also, it's just like when I'm talking to my French teacher and trying to tell a funny story, it ends up not being funny because I can't <laughs> use the exact words I want to use. Or like, um, I know the exact word for this to make the story actually funny. Um, so it's just like this... I kind of feel like my brain is buffering when I'm speaking French. Like, I'm trying and trying to think of what to say, and it's not coming out. And it's just, like, this feeling of frustration of having trying to express myself. I completely agree because, I mean, I won't say I'm, like, fluent, but I can get by better than I could last year. But, like, that, like, over the summer, something, like, clicked, and suddenly everything was it made sense. And, like, when I could eavesdrop, I was like, oh, that's lame like <laughs> thought it was gonna be like some espionage plot or something like that and instead I'm like you probably should visit a doctor and also not talk about that in public like just things like that and it I also learned that well first off because I agree like I can't articulate what I'm thinking in French because there's only like a hundred thousand French words and in total and like it takes 300 years just to say what you want to say because you've got to like say it a particular way and faire and like all that kind of stuff whereas like in English you can be like the leaves spun around <laughs> <laughs> and like it's so much easier and so I I agree like you're just like just speak English to me or like where's my translator and then you translate it and it's like the most basic answer in French and it doesn't give off the or like convey the same like meaning and so I feel like people I mean I'm stupid in English but definitely dumber in French <laughs> Yeah, I like to when I go to the movies and I see a, sh- a movie in VO and they have the French subtitles, I'll sometimes just end up reading the French subtitles to see how things are translated and lots of things get lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and lots of it. I guess that's just kind of translation in general with any language. 
Yeah, you'd be surprised, especially when you start, because I would start listening to, um, I'd have French subtitles and listening to Friends in French, just because I can't always understand, but I read significantly better than I hear, Mm -hmm. as everyone does, and just being like, that is not what he just said, and I am positive that that's not it, and just knowing that there's such a difference, no matter what. Isn't there a line in Friends where, I can't remember what the original English is, but it's uh joey's talking about how you go i think it's to the ice cream shop and you try all the different flavors but in french he says you go to the patisserie and you try all the different pastries and i'm like no one does that (laughs) (laughs) like you go to the ice cream shop and you try all the flavors and it's you know yeah it's this that conveys the message you go to the patisserie no one's gonna be like can i have some of the brioche and then like the other thing like it just it doesn't make yeah as much sense it's not as funny i don't know we were watching back to the future and if you've seen that movie the the big plot point is he's wearing calvin klein underwear but in french it's pierre cardon <laughs> underwear <laughs> i was like i guess that's the equivalent to calvin klein in paris yeah this has nothing to do with french but when i was on a plane ride from hong kong to la coming back from um some time in asia i um watched 50 first dates the or the adam sandler movie Mm, is that the right word i think okay i watched (laughs) i watched the japanese version of it and it was really interesting so i had it on english subtitles and it was like all japanese cast that were still in hawaii but they were all japanese i was like Mm. okay same plot same everything but there were like minute differences that were so cultural like the news when they were showing her the news of what happened they showed trump getting elected and bombs <laughs> and i was like this oh, is propaganda no. like there's no other it was insane it was definitely so interesting i do love watching like like especially cuz netflix you can watch international shows and movies and i'm watching a a hilarious k drama called the sound of your heart or something like that <laughs> yeah it's so funny but there's just little korean things that i'm like I don't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> and they like made this Trump joke and I was like, aha, that's not funny. <laughs> but I'm sure Koreans are like, ha ha ha, America sucks. <laughs> I don't know. Humor is so different. Yeah. Humor is so different everywhere. Mm-hmm. Not in French. French humor is just, what is it? It's not funny. Someone said like, <laughs> they don't laugh here. They just snort. Because nothing is like laugh out loud funny. It's just. <laughs> oh wow, you're right. It's true. <laughs> That's I. I met this girl who who this woman who translates Vogue, the travel section of Vogue from French to English for them, and she said that they just use a ton, a ton, a ton of puns. Then that was like half of the writing, and then it's not trans. You can't translate that into English because it doesn't make mm. sense. Yeah. And she's like, so I just try to figure out what to say half the time. I was like, oh, is that puns? Is it just puns that are half the humor? Like, yeah. I don't know. I guess. Yeah, there. Well, I like since I teach English, there's a lot of things like that you don't realize that you say that are puns or like turns of phrases or things like that, that my students are like, what is Netflix and chill? <laughs> and you're like, um, would you like the clean version? <laughs> the not so clean version, but how do I explain chill to someone who they're not going to probably ever use that unless they move to like LA or yeah. New York or something. Like, I don't know, like chill like an ice cube, you know, ice just kind of sits there. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Lots of colloquials that you can't yeah. explain. Yeah. Not type of people are like, can you explain that? I was like, nah. <laughs> I was trying to explain what the Pledge of Allegiance was to my French oh, teacher. because She couldn't understand the concept of standing in front of a flag with your heart, with your hand on your heart. She was like, no one does that. Then I, finally I was like, it's kind of like the Marseille, the French national anthem, but you speak it and you face the flag. You say it every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty dictatorship. Yeah. In Texas, uh, the they school I went own, to, yeah. yeah, I had to say the, the Pledge of Allegiance and the Texas Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. I don't even remember it. I just remember being like, what the fuck? Yeah. Texas is its own country. Oh, gosh. You couldn't pay me to live there again. Yeah, no, I'm good. You could get a mansion. Houston is the best city in Texas, and it 
defies every stereotype people have about Texas. That's true. Houston mm-hmm. is nice. Or um, Austin. But and Austin is like its own country within I'll Texas. I will stand up for Texas because it doesn't... People just associate it with the angry white men who live there, but it's a great state. <laughs> I, I lived in west texas it's mm. like old country with all the longhorns so like, that's my only like okay <laughs> please don't hurt me <laughs> that is what's important to like point out for anywhere you're gonna have this viewpoint of the entire like i have my entire viewpoint of the state will be based on where i lived <laughs> like i don't i can't speak from a california viewpoint or from utah like i can speak from florida yeah <laughs> and other places but yeah. like everyone's and like that's really important when it comes to coming to france as well mm-hmm. it's like i have this viewpoint and you especially as a traveler especially as a visitor you can come have this viewpoint of paris assume all french are that way which is inaccurate and mm-hmm. view all parisians are that way which is also inaccurate yeah and that's what happens between traveling and living yeah mm-hmm. that there's this disconnect in this idealized version, and then one French person who might be rude can ruin it for you. And also taking your cultural background and trying to put it into a foreign country. And people, like like the stereotype, like French waiters are rude, but they're not rude, they're just French. And we're used to people basically hovering over us every 30 seconds, refilling our drinks in the U.S. And in France, they're like, you're fine. Have a conversation with your company or be alone. If you need me, call me over. But you know what I mean? Like you can't take those ideas and beliefs that you have and try to force them to fit into the mold of France or of Paris because you're, you're just going to end up disappointed or have these negative stereotypes or be confused. Because like, I mean, yeah, like French people are rude, but that's because Americans are overly nice. So, yeah. like, if you're not, ex- like, used to people not smiling at you on the street or saying hello, like, yeah, you're going to think that people are angry and pissed off and get out of my way and, like, all that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> agree. That's like, um, don't move to France and want it to be Florida or Ohio. It's going to be France. <laughs> so you can't expect it to be anything else. Yeah, 100%. Um, so your blog name, just to tell people, it's last night's reading on Instagram and it's also, and my other one is Kate Cavino. And I've looked at it. It's really cool. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's really cool and authentic and really well done. Um, thank you so much for coming here today and talking about all this stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. This is really fun. <laughs> Thanks, Renee, for joining. Thanks You'll for tolerating me. <laughs> You'll come more. Don't worry. Hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs>